Welcome all to the Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast series brought to you by the IASC ECN. I'm Hita and I study urban social ecological histories in Bangalore. We're talking identities today, so we thought we'd reflect a bit on ours. About me, though I can claim an honorary Bengalurian status, having lived in Bangalore since I was eight, I'm essentially from India's southernmost state called Kerala. I am also a brown, middle-class, female immigrant scholar within the United Kingdom. And I am Maria, and I study agricultural and food systems. So I guess I'm an immigrant to Bonn in Germany, where I'm talking to you from now. I'm a white female, and I guess I engage in what I would call job transhumanism, where I've moved for my education and work around the whole globe already. And we're your hosts today. You know, this past year has been absolute madness for the world, but also for me personally, as I found myself suddenly thrust into the role of a caregiver. I was struggling with an ill parent, struggling with the pandemic, and also with this precarity that my academic position is inherently built into. And one of the things that has kept me sane through all of this, and something that I'm incredibly grateful for, is having the support of friends and colleagues, yourself and Dane included, Maria. Well... I could not agree more. I think our collaboration has kept me sane as well. And I think I owe much of my laughter to you and Dane, despite of all the other circumstances, which is the pandemic and other personal stuff. And I think I would even say we achieved a great deal. For example, when we pulled together a whole digital network meeting for the IAC ECN. Yeah, that meeting was great. You know, in our world that's driven by competition and what other hosts of the In Common podcast refer to as the academic arms race, I think it's extremely important for us to have these networks of people who care, who are not judgmental. They're simply there for you. No questions asked. And so let's talk more about these interpersonal relationships with our guest today, as usual, who will be introduced by Dane. Thank you for joining us today. This is the fifth episode of the Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast, where we will be discussing the role of power, gender, and the global South. I'm Dane Whitaker, a PhD student at the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University, and I have the privilege today to be joined by Malini Raghunathan. Malini is the faculty director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center and associate professor in the School of International Service at American University. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So in our previous episodes, we have discussed building your profile as an interdisciplinary researcher and the opportunities and challenges of working in a disciplinary environment as an interdisciplinary scientist. So we're really excited to jump in today and discuss the role of power, gender, and the global South in interdisciplinary work and team building. Um, so let's get started. Malini, how do you describe the research you do and yourself as a scholar? So I think most broadly, I am a critical scholar of the urban environment. I am trained as a critical urban geographer, and I draw on traditions in political ecology, urban and human geography, and environmental justice, among others, to study the root causes of urban environmental inequities, both in historical and contemporary perspective. And in particular, I'm interested in how marginalized groups, marginalized spatially, politically, economically, 
organize and make claims on the state to bring about change towards environmental and social justice. So that's broadly speaking how I self-describe and um, I see my scholarship. In particular, I am interested in inequities related to urban water access, flooding and climate change vulnerability, but how these are undergirded by historically constituted property regimes and property law. So as a geographer, I'm very interested in how environmental inequities are manifest in space and, um, and how that they come to be constructed through um, spatial regimes. I think the word critical is fairly key in my self-narration um, um, because the word critical signifies um, as Nancy Fraser has put it um, in her um, epic article, What is Critical About Critical Social Theory? The word critical signifies um, an identification um, with the social uh, urgencies and social movements of our time, right? So, so um, in particular, it sort of identifies and signals a kind of solidarity with these movements although not a completely uncritical one. The word critical also signifies a preoccupation with power, with knowledge, with history, with power relations. And finally, I think the word critical is meant to signify not just research questions, but questioning the questions, right? Who gets to speak for who? What are sort of dominant frameworks that erase out the worlds and the knowledges of marginalized groups and sort of what epistemologies are foregrounded against um, what others that are silenced, uh, let's say. So I think I think this term critical is pretty key in the ways that I see myself and my contributions. That's super cool. And as the recently appointed faculty director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center, what are some of the, the projects you're working on that you're really excited about? Yeah, thanks for that question. I assume this role at a very tumultuous moment, that is to say the summer of 2020, which is uh, referred to, at least in the United States context, as the summer of reckoning in the wake of the police brutality and murder of George Floyd, but also many, many other African-American people who fell victim to police violence. There was a sort of enough is enough kind of moment in the United States, really outcry against systemic racism and historical structural forms of, of racism, settler colonialism, patriarchy, white supremacy, and, um, and, and really a push towards recognizing these. But I think that those protests had really global reverberations. You saw protests in Rio de Janeiro, you saw protests in Auckland, in, uh, in Australia, you saw, you saw even sort of the ways in which anti-caste movements in India and feminist movements in India were, were um, articulating with this sense of urgency around anti-racism. So for me that that moment of assuming this position was really interesting, eye-opening and critical. And I would often find myself, you know, what is a scholar who is an Indian immigrant in the United States who has a very different set of experiences than let's say historically marginalized black and brown uh, folks in the United States, what do, what do I bring to the table? And I've often thought of myself as someone whose research is trans research and outreach and, and engagement and teaching is, is transversal in the sense that I use the findings and insights generated through research in India to ask new and unintuitive questions of environmental injustices in the United States, right? So I also look at environmental racism, housing inequities, 
and climate change vulnerability and water insecurity in the United States. And, and then likewise, I use questions generated uh, you know, around racial regimes of property, around the sort of institutionalization of inequities within law to ask questions of the Indian context, right? And so it's not exactly a strictly comparative methodology like you would you would have given by um, positivist political science, uh, for instance, but it is that sort of creative transversal or what Edward Said would call a contrapuntal approach, right? Where you use one context to illuminate maybe things that you might not have seen of another context. And so bringing that kind of global perspective to the table, right? Thinking about anti-racism as not just an agenda rooted in US history and politics, but also with more global echoes, I think that I could have some value added to the to the anti-racism conversation. And I started really thinking about the many different arenas in which anti-racism matters. And of course, you know, so many from education to environment to health to criminal justice to the arts and literature. And so I created these various thematic groups in my university and invited faculty to affiliate with them. And then we've launched in the Zoom environment, as you are very well aware, we launched a series of very um, wide ranging conversations and, you know, to really, I guess, speak truth to power, to really have faculty, activists, advocates, students contemplate, right, the roots of racism and the possibilities towards freedom and, and emancipation for uh, historically marginalized groups. Um, so that's been my sort of my role to really globalize anti-racism, the project anti-racism, and also to make it more intersectional. And so, you know, these have been some of the ways in which I've risen, tried to rise to the occasion in, in a kind of very tense moment in the United States. Thanks, Malini. I think that was fascinating. It's also very nice to be able to hear what you do in so much detail, just because it's so fascinating in terms of the synergies, like you say, with the work that I do as well. But I was touching upon, I was thinking, reflecting upon two points that you're talking about. One is the idea of preoccupation of power, not just in the questions we research, but also in the questions we ask. And I think that's something that that sort of resonates with us, especially when when we do research in countries such as the UK, the US and so on. There is a certain amount of coloniality in the research questions that we ask. And, you know, there are ways, there are lots of discussions on how we decolonize research. But again, as an interdisciplinary researcher who sort of has to straddle this idea of developing a research profile that is global, at the same time as engaging with these very ethical concerns of what am I doing? Am I going into sub-Saharan Africa as a white scholar and uh, researching questions there? Or am I going into Accra somewhere else and researching questions of injustice there? What are the ethical implications of that? And I think one question really relates to how do you then straddle this as an early career uh, scholar with all the demands of publication and, and building a research profile? Because the other thing is also you need to find a job you know, in this system. The other question that I had really was when you spoke about comparing, well, not comparing, when you talk about, talk about getting perspectives that you learn from one context and kind of extrapolating that to other contexts, um, so to speak. I was wondering what are the practical challenges? Because I think to my mind, both of these questions are interrelated. And I was just wondering if you had some thoughts to share on that. Thanks for these excellent questions. So on the first question, around the ethics of research as well as the pragmatics of scholarly publishing. I do think that there is now much more consciousness around the extractive nature of academics, right? The fact that academics fly in and fly out, you know, study the heck out of these research subjects. And, and there's really 
there's really no reflection around some of the harm that can be done with this type of extractive research process. And I think more recently, the, the reflection has filtered very subtly and maybe in some ways more strongly, but in certain subfields and disciplines. I wouldn't say that all academic social sciences or those fields that sort of straddle the natural and social sciences really have that reflexivity, Hitta. I do think that there is much, much more work to be done. But I think it really pays off in the longer run because you cultivate relationships with people that are based much more on trust and mutuality and the sense that, oh, um, you know, Malini's uh, contacting me, you know, perhaps I can ask her, can she look up this particular brief that I wanted to, to access? Or is there an opportunity for a research partnership where there be material, you know, material gains here? And I always make it very clear that now that I've sort of in a place where I can afford to pay research participants, I can afford to, to substantially comp compensate people who participate, that it must do that. You cannot take people's time for granted, right? So I think that two, more of a two-way street where there is material gain, where there is also knowledge gain through the partnership, where there is a sense of humility, and also where the questions you bring to the table, right, have to be sort of set aside and you have to ask your research participants and collaborators, like what are the questions that they're interested in, right? What are the questions that they might want to study uh, rather than you're coming with your own sort of lens? And I think that participatory process is part of the decolonizing as well, right? And then your question about then, but then with the, how do we balance that with the needs of, of publishing and the kind of demands that I cannot lie here and say that that's definitely a challenge and potentially, you know, they're go at odds with each other. But I can say that there is a movement, I think, to recognize that we need to push back against the extractive nature of research and this kind of constant publishing mill, right? There is some movement to even, now I sit on the other side of, of promotion and evaluation and tenure committees where the recognition that someone is a very ethical researcher and, you know, takes time to cultivate relationships, even if it doesn't mean, you know, a gazillion articles, like that's valued, right? It's that the quality of scholarship, but also the kind of lower productivity, but, but much more, you know, uh, lasting relationships that I think people recognize. It's not easy and it's definitely not across ac the academy, but I think that there is certainly some movement towards that. And I'm heartened to see it. And I think funding agencies are recognizing it too. You know, now universities have to be much more clear about the effects and on the community, about the collaborations with community partners, right? It's not just about, you know, your particular academic publications, right? And so, so I think funding agencies are really pushing that and saying that we want to see a much more collaborative research agenda here and an approach and methodological approach. So I, I think that change is coming from different directions and which is a heartening sign, I think. Uh, next on your question about the transnational character of research and what that means for a scholar's profile. I think this is also pretty challenging. And again, it's not easy and it's not a sure path towards you know, scholarly notoriety. I think it can be difficult sometimes to have one foot, let's say in my case, in the U.S. context and thinking about questions of environmental racism, but then also in the Indian context, thinking about environmental justice and environmental casteism and sort of the inequities manifest in space, you know, and, and then people find it hard to kind of categorize you like, is she a Global South scholar or is she a scholar, you know, so I think it comes with certain liabilities, to be very frank with you. I think that yeah. that um, that people want to box you in. They really do. That's what academia is. It's a relentless push towards disciplining, right? 
disciplining in so many different ways towards disciplining you uh, in knowledge, towards disciplining you in terms of theme, right? So when you're like undisciplined, right? When you step outside of those bounds, I don't think that the rewards or appreciation are guaranteed by any means. I think though that if you articulate your research agenda in this way, that's it's not just about adding multiple cases and you study all these different countries and that's what you're, you know, but you really think about some of the ways in which as I said, this contrapuntal or transversal approach to research, where you really think about how does asking questions of one context reveal questions of another. If you think about that, tra- mm-hmm. if you think about transnational transnationalism that way, and you think about the history of transnational political solidarity across, let's say, black in, b- black radical activists, but also the, the Dalit Panthers back in the day, or you think about um, internationalist anti-colonial struggles. You know, activism has gone in that transnational way. So. So academics by actually siloing themselves are, are are not necessarily following kind of a historical or natural path. They're actually going against that, you know, because, mm-hmm. because people who are doing work on the ground, they don't know disciplines. They don't know this kind of categorization. They work across these multiple different fields and political programs. So I think that, that there is something to speak, say about, you know, doing research with that internationalist view, particularly if you have in mind kind of an overarching agenda of, I said, or overarching, um, objective or political commitment to justice and, and liberation. Thanks, Malini. I mean, yeah, that's also a scary prospect. I think the last time I tried to do that, I was told to go back to Bangalore and do my research. But <laughs> yeah, no, I yeah. think you're I think you're right. I think that that people people have a suspicion, especially if you again are difficult to categorize because you're not a white British scholar, right? And so somehow, and I really do want to call attention to the racism here, right? Because yes. somehow it's okay for a white male academic, and I have plenty of them in my um, immediate surroundings at American University, to go off and study the slums of, uh, you know, of Johannesburg or of India and, you know, and then come back and sort of be like given multiple awards and accolades for doing this work, right? But a brown woman? Yeah, nope. it's much more complicated for a brown woman to do that, right? And so there's this yeah. there's this way in which sort of the, you know white scholars are able to go wherever they want and not be questioned because that's such the norm of the colonial gaze, versus a brown woman suddenly if she wants to look you know at uh, working class neighborhoods in Manchester, let's say, and sort of immig- you know immig- suddenly it's like, well, aren't you supposed to be a Bangalore person, right? So there is yep. a very real racism here, and we're not past that by any means. Yeah, can we take like a minute of silence for that statement? <laughs> <laughs> but I think, yeah, Maria has a question for you. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm all for the minute of silence. I think that is so true what you just said. I mean, it happened to me in, a, in another context, actually, and in a labor econ context in this case, when I was like still studying, where I was uh, inquiring on the gender pay gap. And then I was told, well, you can't do that research. You're a woman. You're biased. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> you know, because like, you're like, and you're not biased because you're a man, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that was, that was, you know, 20 year old me standing there. And I was like, holy, what am I getting myself into here right now? And I guess it's I guess it's very important to to actually like talk about these things just right because of that. I was actually I had a a question that on on another aspect that I was also wanted to to point out a, a little bit and ask you what your opinion is on that. 
Because when you say like power relationships, right? Like in research, we also face a lot of these, right? Especially when we're young scholars, right? There is always this like power relationship to your professor. And you were also saying like, who's asking the questions, right? Like that's also the thing is like, one thing is like yourself, like going out there, finding these super interesting research questions that so just say the field, so just say tells you in a way, I want to say. But then you also have your supervisor on the other hand, who's like, I don't think that that's a relevant question, <laughs> right? And these kind of things. So I was wondering if you have like somewhere between advice and how do you treat or institutionalize that in the sense like that you're a director now, right? Like how, how do you take care of that? Like, do you have certain um, advisor to PhD uh, relationships where you're like, like that I would advise more like something like that compared to, I don't, um, I don't know, something different, right? Like how, how is your, your take on that? You have to find your people, right? You really have to find your people. This is something I believe in very strongly. When you're a PhD student and you're struggling through the various stages and you're racked by self-doubt and you feel like, you know, that whole imposter syndrome, like, like, are you sure you belong here and everything? You have to find those people who will remind you that you belong there, who will push you and challenge you, but also support you. And those people don't necessarily come in the form of your dissertation advisor, right? And it sounds like you formed a community, right? Between Dane, Maria, and Hita of uh, early career scholars, who are thinking about these questions, you know, from around the world. And that those are your people, right? And I think that's such an important infrastructure of care that is necessary in order for you to, to advance and actually come into your own, find your own voice, find your own feet, find your own place in the, in the world, you know, as a thinker, do, you know, doing the, the things that you do, making the small changes that you can in your own corner, right? And so, so that's, that's really, really key. And I think that cultivating that infrastructure of care, right, beyond the traditional mentor-mentee relationship is going to actually last you a lot longer than that mentor-mentee relationship. You know, having said that, I've experienced both poor mentorship and very, very strong mentorship. And I know what poor mentorship looks like when you feel completely sort of lost and you feel like the problem is really you versus strong mentorship where you can actually think about, oh, there are some structures that are set up here that are really challenging, but I have somebody who wants to support me navigating these structures and this hyper competitiveness, right? And this is what good mentorship looks like. It looks like someone challenging me, telling me that a piece of writing is not up to the mark, but at the same time, working with me, believing in me, believing in my ideas, right? And so I've seen both those faces. And I have to say that good mentorship does make a huge difference. And I've learned so much from that good mentoring relationship. So then as a professor, right, it, when I started to teach, take on PhD students, uh, be, serve on their committees, serve as the chair of PhD students, but also undergraduate students, you know, there are great ideas on their theses, on their research, on their internships. And I think good mentoring takes time. It's in those moments where you learn and you humanize the mentor-mentee relationship, you know, what's going on in your life, 
what do you find difficult or or you, you know I really appreciated that comment you made in class today I think that really um, helped elevate the tone of the conversation thank you so much you know we're so not used to saying kind words to each other because everything in academia is all about the competition and you know these ideas are are not good enough or you know how have you contributed to the literature and we're so used to that that we never actually stop and say you know this is actually really a really great idea and so for me, these little things really matter. They take time, you know, over time to continuously reinforce. But I've really taken the good mentoring experience that I've had and tried to translate that into practice as now a mentor myself. So, you know, it's small things like my PhD student currently, um, you know, has had applied for several funding opportunities, didn't come through, didn't come through. And finally, you know, something came through and it's like, you know, writing her an email, call me right now so we can celebrate over the phone. You know, these little things, I, I think, just sort of go a long ways. Again, it's about that relationship building, right? You do it in your research, you do it with your immediate professional environments as well. So all, you know, all is to say, find your people, establish your infrastructure of care, know when you're in a bad mentoring relationship and get out of it, right? It's not worth your sanity. And I've seen people damaged by these bad mentoring relationships, right? You know, if you are able to, if you are so lucky enough, if you are so lucky, try to find a, a positive mentoring relationship where you realize it's not you, right? You're not the, you're not the problem here. You see what I'm saying? Where, where suddenly, like the sudden, the gaze turns out. You're like, oh, actually, the system is sort of set up to to sort of maybe want me to fail, but I'm not going to fail. Awesome. I'm hearing kind of a, a theme when you were talking about good research and building relationships with community. That takes time, and being a good mentor and kind of building that infrastructure of care that takes time. It's kind of this slowing down and taking the time to really care like when when we kind of push away all the deadlines and all the work and all of the performance metrics that we have to meet like we are all humans <laughs> and we all do care about each other so i guess like reflecting on what it what it means to be an interdisciplinary scholar someone who's always kind of having to prove your place there because you don't fit into the disciplines you're you're actually deliberately mixing or even creating your own way of doing things how do you slow down and and kind of take care of yourself take care of the your colleagues and take care of the the people that you're doing research with and i guess how do we start to shift this system of incentives and the system of funding and the system of kind of performance evaluation towards being a little more human. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. And you know, I remember being an early sc career scholar and, and hearing some of my senior female scholars talk about slow scholarship. And I remember just thinking to myself, oh, it's all very well for you to say that now that you're tenured and you're senior, you know, we still have that that fire that's pushing us to, or that pressure that's pushing us to publish or perish, right? And so I, I do want it to infuse a good dose of, of realism to this conversation as well and say that I think that there is a certain way of playing the game without getting played, right? And so what it means to play the game, Dane, is in many ways, yes, to target your work to certain key audiences so that it gets picked up and that that then you kind of forge a pathway for yourself right because the more audiences pick up on your work the more it's likely to be received right and so you want to do that to a certain extent and even you know in my case i am surrounded by by political scientists who don't necessarily understand 
critical geography research and they were sort of pushing me to publish in some of the international relations political science journals and I said no you know I said no because I don't want to spread myself so thin that I'm neither understood in environmental studies and critical urban studies nor am I understood in international relations because I'm a bit of a new upstart to that field you know so I actually, so this is the thing with advice, right? Advice always comes from that place of sort of, you know, for the most part, well-meaning words, right? But you really have to take the spectrum of advice you get and really kind of listen to your own instincts or perhaps navigate some of that stuff, sometimes against the advice, right? And so for, for me, I, I think it's it was important for me to actually find those audiences, say, okay, look, I am going to publish in these in these venues that are known in human geography, even though I'm interdisciplinary and I draw from anthropology, sociology, right, especially anthropology of the state, anthropology of development, right, critical development studies, and in some ways, even post-colonial IR theory, you know, I'm, it's in the early part of my career, I'm really going to consolidate these audiences, consolidate these, these fields or subfields, so that I can make somewhat of a of a mark there, right? And then, you know, start to frame myself as say beyond some of these more narrow specializations. And I think that was what it meant to play the game without getting played for me, because if I had taken them on their up on their advice, the reviews and letters that come for tenure would have been like, we can't really place this person, right? So you want to somehow also be placed. You want to be the thing is here is legibility. You want to be legible to at least a subset of people, even if you are very cross-disciplinary and you draw from, you know, from different fields. So that legibility is a craft. You have to craft it. You have to, it's not ready-made and it, you know, unless you like are completely go the very disciplinary route your entire career. So because you're not doing the, the normal quote unquote disciplinary route and you're doing something a little bit outside of the bounds, you have to make that legibility possible for your audience, right? And so I think it's a self, self-framing stuff, self-narration stuff, but also that targeted, like, who do you want to write for? And keeping that audience in your mind as you write, right? So that you're actually writing for someone, like, and you could even think of like, who is that person I'm writing for, right? Who is that person that I want to actually pick up my work and I want them to cite me or something like that. It's very helpful to do it that way. And, and again, really take the advice you get with a grain of salt because I have gotten so much advice that is bad advice, honestly. Yeah, let's put that out there. <laughs> That's some very real advice. And I appreciate kind of you taking into account our position as early career researchers, our need to kind of establish ourselves, but while also kind of taking into account the things that like we really want to focus on and taking other people's advice, everybody's advice, even your advice with a, with a grain of salt. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Mine included. Yes, very much so. I guess we've kind of talked a little bit about your research. Well, quite a bit about your research. We've talked about you. I think it would be really nice to hear kind of how like your gender identity and how your like background, I think you touched a little bit about how being from Bangalore, how that has played into uh, some of the questions people have asked you, but kind of how has that influenced your research and your collaborations and working on teams? So kind of like the research that you do, but then also how you work and how you show up in the, the teams that you work on and the departments that you work within? So I am a cis heterosexual woman of South Asian origin, living, working, raising a young interracial family in the United States. 
So there already you have a couple of different identities colliding, right? Given how long I've now lived in America, I identify with this label person of color or faculty of color in my professional environment, right? That's how I'm labeled and that's how I uh, view myself as well. There's a way in which when you first come here, you think of yourself as an, a recent immigrant, you live here for longer and then people start classifying you as a person of color. You start experiencing things that other people of color experience. And then you're like, oh, that's what I am right now. So, so that is an added layer of my identity, right? A, a woman of color. On the other hand, I'm also middle-class and I have the privileges of being educated, right? Of being quite highly educated. And for those who are familiar with Indian last names, my last name, Ranganathan, signifies that my father is a Tamil Brahmin of the upper castes in India. But again, last names don't tell the full story because my mother is non-Brahmin, non-upper caste. And my parents had what you might call a love marriage, right, in India. Uh, both of them fervently resisted arranged marriages to members of their own caste and were quite old by the time they married. My mother was considered a very high-risk pregnancy. So I have these vastly intersecting identities that position me as both marginal and dominant outside and inside, peripheral and central. And sometimes these identities can even happen at the same time. So I find myself in research contexts in India. So as a woman, as an Indian woman, right? But with a visiting card that says that I'm a professor or you know whatever at the time, PhD student, you know whatever stage I was at. So then it might give me entry to let's say the um, executive engineer's office of the stormwater drain department in, in the Bangalore uh, BBMP, right? The, the name, the city corporation office. And so, but then I'm a woman in an office surrounded completely, like there's literally like the one woman engineer, right? But like all male. So then of course, urban infrastructure, water engineering, stormwater engineering, sanitation engineering, completely dominated by men. And so they're wondering, what does this woman know about my field? What does she know about the technicalities, right? Oh, and then she's asking these political questions. So then there's always that suspicion, uh, you know, about like, does she even know what she's talking about kind of thing, right? Uh, but yet, but yet some of my credentials position me as a little bit more privileged within that office. So I think that identity is so, so complex and overlaid, especially gender, you know, gender intersecting with race, social positioning, class, and of course, caste, as I mentioned to, to you earlier as well. And, and then some of those things matter in very different contexts in the United States. When I, let's say I go to an African-American neighborhood and I interview an African-American elected rep representative. And, you know, there's there's a certain outsiderness to that context that I have. Right. But then then there's also an insiderness, for instance, when the people who show up at a community meeting are all women. Right. And so I think there are these inside outsider positionalities that I'm constantly navigating. And I think that makes work challenging, but I think it also makes it richer in some ways. And I think one of the responsibilities of a critical researcher is to always try to grapple with that positionality of being privileged many a times, whether I'm in the US or in India, ultimately at the end of the day, but also trying to practice a politics of allyship, right? An ethical, as Hitha was asking earlier, research approach and a politics of, of allyship where you're in these contexts and you want to sort of be extremely mindful, humble, ethical about the ways that you ask questions, the ways you interact with people. And, and even, you know, it sometimes, it sometimes can be quite difficult to do that, especially when you're, let's say, in an all-male environment, right? So I, I sorry to, to answer that question with a, a series of layers. But I cannot sort of disentangle, right, my gender being a woman with the uh, multiple other identities 
that actually sort of the identities themselves don't change, but their meaning and their locatedness in the rubrics of power change depending on the context that I'm in. Yeah, I think that kind of resonates a lot with the kind of things that I've gone through in Bangalore as well. On one hand, here's this young woman. And the best part is I usually get away with saying that I'm a student in many cases, especially when I was doing my PhD. It wasn't as if, you know, there is someone doing their research on a on a very uh, sensitive topic. It's more like, hey, this is a student coming here. She's doing going to ask us some questions. Little har- harmless kind of thing. She's harmless. Yeah, very harmless. Yeah. So that's that identity that comes across. But there is also this identity of being a woman and asking questions about Hindu-Muslim conflict, for example. And then they will tell you that's not for your ears to hear. And then you'd have to rely on your research assistant to actually get some of the information that you need. Whereas, you know, talking to other women in the community, for example, you know, there would be things like, what are the kinds of contraceptives you use? You know, you have a whole long discussion about contraceptives before they actually get to answering the question that you have about lakes and, you know, uh, and how they use it, because that builds that insiderness. I also remember my research assistant walking in and going to, you know, and reinforcing this inside-outside divide because he uh, belonged to many of these communities. So any village you go to, he'd, he'd find someone there. He knows. So he'd go in there and say, you know, this is someone who doesn't know all of our customs. So I'm asked, telling her, I'm taking her alongside me to, you know, understand some of these customs. And the amount of information you get just with that approach is just incredible because now people are more interested in telling you this is our point of view this is what we want to tell you but at the same time you go to the uk first world country and then when you're doing your research there you're suddenly confronted with questions of how are you going to go into bangalore and do your research i mean if you've literally spent 24 30 years of your life in Bangalore, studying the people, being in that context, living that context. But now you're supposed to consider, okay, should I carry a pepper spray with me when I go out into <laughs> into the field? Should I have a male, you know, someone with me while I'm uh, negotiating empty spaces? And all of these are considerations that you have in the back of your mind when you're working in India, but not something that's explicitly articulated as a strategy, so to speak. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating, this whole insider-outsider dynamic that you just spoke yeah, about. Yeah, and I think, I think you've exactly talked about the dilemmas of being an insider in particular, which is that you don't necessarily consciously think about your research strategy. You're sort of, you sort of say, oh, I'm going to uh, yeah. do a snowball methodology where, you know, I go and speak to someone at, at the chai store or the, where they're selling, you know, small little candy or, or knickknacks, numpkin, and then they, they suggest you talk to this person and then they suggest yeah, you talk yeah. to that person. And it's a little bit more of an informal methodology that's not sort of methodically thought out. And so so I think that that becomes quite a challenge then to to then be like, oh, I was actually doing a very purposeful research design. Yeah, absolutely. So we usually start out asking what navigating interdisciplinarity means to you, but our conversation was just flowing too nicely. So um, I'm going to bring this more towards the end of the question. So I think the overarching question is, what does navigating interdisciplinarity mean to you? And I also want to ask you, you've, you've used terms like transversal and counterpuntal that seem to be really core to your research. So if you could also kind of expand a little bit on those, I would love to hear more about them. Absolutely. So navigating interdisciplinarity to me means first and foremost, failing at interdisciplinarity and sometimes succeeding at it. And I say this, and perhaps it sounds a bit cynical, but I've had this sort of love-hate relationship with interdisciplinarity, to be very honest with you. When I started out as a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley in 2003, 
I was quite enamored with it. I saw that I saw interdisciplinarity as my pathway. I had been trained as a scientist, a natural scientist in my undergraduate uh, degree. I had a liberal arts degree. So I, I certainly uh, had taken courses beyond the natural sciences, but you know, that's, that's how I had been trained. I had had a work experience in Delhi, uh, working on energy development and gender. And then I found this program. It was the energy and resources group at UC Berkeley, which had a lot of like physicists, scientists, you know, who were doing or ecologists who now were, were thinking very much about social and political questions. Um, and I was like, oh, this is, this is so cool and so interesting. But as time went on, I started to get a bit disillusioned with the promise of interdisciplinarity because I saw that there was some liabilities as far as the things I talked about earlier, which is, you know, who exactly is your audience and how do you, how do you um, make a contribution that, that, that is, you know, sufficient and weighty enough, right, within the academy. And so I started to frame myself more squarely as a geographer, which is itself an interdisciplinary field, right? There's a lot of physical geographers, there's human geographers, there's urban geographers, political geographers, you know, cultural geographers. And so there's, it itself is, but it, but it also has a sort of established set of parameters, you know, it's journals, it's conferences, it's whatever, that make it possible to, in some ways, be located within an interdisciplinary discipline, if that makes sense. And so there's that dialectic between at once being part of an epistemic community of people, right, who who refer to similar um, literatures and frameworks, and you can kind of understand each other, and also then being interdisciplinary in terms of being able to draw from history and, you know, social theory and even the ecological sciences in some of your your research and writing. Um, And so that tension between being both disciplinary and interdisciplinary is where I kind of finally landed. And I think it was later in my career, let's say as I was coming up for tenure, that I actually, I feel like I'm actually much more interdisciplinary now than I was when I decided to put myself within geography, because now I'm, you know, I'm writing a collaborative book project with a literature professor on corruption narratives and how they're used to contest land grabs in cities of the global south and you know land grabs including wetland grabs including other forms of of land appropriations and my literature colleague is helping me mine sort of post-colonial films that are set in Lagos, also novels that talk about the experiences of land-based dispossession. And so we're looking really, our our object of analysis is narrative. And so you have to draw from both ethnography as well as fictional narrative, which can sometimes render real life and power relations even more poignantly than uh, social science research designs, right? So drawing from novels and films, now, now I feel actually more interdisciplinary than I felt you know, earlier. And I feel like I've almost come full circle from a little bit of a enamored relationship with it to a hesitance and pulling back and saying, look, I need to make my impact. Let me situate myself in geography. To then I like, oh, I feel a little bit more free now. Let me, let me play. Let me be creative. Let me really, let me watch films and think about, you know, settings and scene and uh, narrative in a way that, that I felt constrained to do earlier. And I actually won a major uh, fellowship from the American Council of Learned Society's Andrew Mellon Foundation to develop this project and book manuscript. And so I felt vindicated in some ways about the sort of approach to interdisciplinarity ultimately. But I, you know, I do want to just say that I've had this sort of waxing and waning relationship with the notion of interdisciplinarity. Yeah, so the term uh, contrapuntal is um, from Edward Said's Culture and Imperialism book, where he actually adopts this from um, music theory. And he said he talks about how, you know, sometimes when you read and again, speaking about novels set in Victorian England, what you don't see is the enormous profits 
that the British Empire got um, from colonialism or, you know, and from, from sugar plantations in the West Indies um, and from, from other sorts of extractive projects they had that are somehow sort of hidden in the, the lily white rendition of Victorian England, right? And so it's actually by looking into, looking beyond the text that you actually, it actually sparks questions that that are not given by the context itself, but that actually help influence and help inform larger kind of research agenda or, or larger line of questioning. And, and he uses this term also to kind of excavate um, the colonial, you know, that's often silenced within these sort of European contexts. And, and for me, you know, that word also brings to my mind what Teresa Caldera has called transversal. So she does research thinking with fellow scholars of the global south and the urban environment from Brazil and India, and how these two contexts um, are not kind of strict comparisons because the historical geographies, political economies, racial, ethnic, cultural histories are so different, but that you can ask really interesting questions about informality and the state form and state formation and street politics and housing by studying one context of the other context. You know, I think these words have a lot in common, but that's how, you know, different sets of scholars have used them. And I find them extremely helpful for thinking about how I, as a scholar, also position myself, you know, as doing research both in the United States and in India. So, so again, that's a kind of different uh trans or inter transdisciplinarity or transversality um, in terms of context and knowledge and, you know, and theory. How awesome. And you're a brilliant storyteller and like bringing all of these kind of experiences and also just like creating possibilities of these different approaches or methods or ways of thinking about ourselves, our research, how we kind of like fit into the greater world. It's been fantastic listening to you, Melanie. Oh, um, thank you so much, Dane. Yeah. Thank you, Marianne Hitta as well, and all of you for just, uh, you know, for just asking me to join your conversation. I, I, I have never had such an opportunity before. And so I'm really grateful. Well, you're not quite done yet. We have <laughs> we have two more questions that we like to ask. And the first one usually is in line with what how you started that interdisciplinarity uh, response. We ask about epic fails and challenges that you face. But Hita had an idea for a slightly different question this time. Do you want to take it away, Hita? So like Dane said, we usually talk about what are the most epic fails that you have experienced in your career and if you're comfortable sharing them with us. But I think in more in line with what we've been discussing about racism and power uh, in this particular episode, I was wondering if there's any experience of racism or power that you're comfortable sharing with us that sort of has shaped the way you think about how you negotiate some of these spaces. I mean, just totally if you're comfortable sharing that with us, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the... The experience of racism is just so many microaggressions, you know, day in and day out, especially in the kind of work environment. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, so I can think of two, and I'm, I'm going to bring it back to the academy because what I've experienced within the university, because because I think that'll be just help for you to hear. And there there are obviously experiences beyond the university, but I really do want to, to bring it back to that. Um, you know, I remember I remember when I first arrived. <laughs> Um, at American University School of International Service. And I had taken on, I was already given like some committee to be on and they were announcing the committees. And so the associate dean, the dean of the entire school, right, was like, and you know, this committee, Malani Rangamafahabahabahabah. And he like purposely like mispronounces my name, like in front of everyone. And at the time I was just like, oh, I'm you know, sort of used to it. My name is difficult, you know, it's got a lot of vowels. And, and so, but I was just like, oh, it's so normalized 
for someone to make fun of somebody's name that they would do it in an audience of a hundred people, you know, and it's totally fine. Like, and I was, and, and then, but I actually wasn't, the funny thing is hit that I wasn't even affected by it until afterwards I went up to my office and all these people came by and I was like, I can't believe they did that. Like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess that was a bit like offensive, you know? And so that was, it's a small example, but it's, it's an example that I don't know. I always, you know, and it's, it's a combination obviously of the sort of, the whiteness of the academy, where apparently a name like Stephanopoulos is totally fine, but Ranganath and Onikrishnan is like totally jarring, right? Um, so there's that, and it's a fairly small slight. But the other thing that really struck me is, uh, as sort of, wow, this is really, this is really a, the whiteness of the academy. I remember having to make a case for why the School of International Service, one of the top international relations school, right, in the country, needed to hire a black scholar. And I remember making this case and I was like, it's a, it's a complete travesty that in the history of the school, we have not tenured one female black scholar. And I remember making the case about why we should hire a particular black scholar who is a very noted historian on American racism and, and thinking very carefully uh, about race and racism. And a white scholar stood up and started yelling at me and a faculty, fellow faculty member, and basically was trying to say that like the study of American race relations should not be in the School of International Service, completely kind of erasing the history of, let's say, W.E.B. Du Bois and Black internationalism and the fact that, you know, American civil rights and anti-colonial movements were fought in solidarity and conversation with what was going on in the in the colonial world, pan-Africanist influences on Black thought. And like, you know, it comes from such a place of ignorance, but yet that ignorance is then portrayed as authority, right? It's like, it's kind of, and again, it comes back to conversations we've had before, like there's this sort of impunity by which certain scholars feel like they can study everybody else and have this knowledge, this sort of godlike position without really questioning the enormous gaps in their experience and knowledge. And so it was pretty mortifying and I held my own and I continued to argue intellectual and calm terms about why this was a matter. But it was a real moment for me where I'm like, nobody else will stand up in this room and actually kind of defend and say why we need to hire a black scholar because it was actually a travesty. It looked really bad on the school, you know, and that they can be completely fine going along and having such clear lack of diversity in the school. So anyway, that's probably too TMI, too much information, but it's fine. I don't really care um, for, for you to have this on the podcast. And I just think that these are experiences where I've had sort of both direct and indirect windows into the clear problems and challenges that the academy has, you know? And and so for me, um, you know, there's, there's many such... <laughs> Yeah, I can totally, totally relate to that. I mean, just to share a couple of incidents that I have gone through as well, which is, uh, remember the the instance that I told, I was told to go back to Bangalore. Yeah. This happened at an interview. It was a funding interview. And I so totally related with that thing that you mentioned of us not realizing that this is racism being practiced. Because for me, it was just another question that... You know, so why is it that you, since you're so focused on Bangalore and its and its environments, why aren't you centering your research there? Kind of question, you know, that that I felt I needed to answer, but I was not given the opportunity to answer, right? Uh, because because the other members of the committee actually realized that this was potentially a racist question, and I think I was not allowed to answer, so to speak, or given an opportunity to answer. But I just didn't recognize it. I go out, I call my mentor. 
she goes hita you just realize that you you've been a target of racism and i'm like really but then that's when you actually it hits you and also this thing about your name or the fact that all brown women are somehow supposed to look alike to each other is well, that's happened that... to me many times by the way so i yes. often forget uh, name some something else uh, within yes. my building or people will <laughs> will ask me a question that's supposed to be for somebody else so that's that's happened yeah. to me so as i said like even these, these things you kind of get inured to you don't you don't question after a certain time right you just kind of get inured to it there's all these microaggressions that keep happening yeah but then it's also something that happens in the academy which is what i realized i mean i remember getting an email from a very prominent society professional society that i had auditioned for a small 10 minute talk that they usually conduct and my talk was obviously about bangalore and its histories and you know anything that did not involve me going to my grandmother's house and visiting it uh, and trying to find the route to my grandmother's house so one year later i get an email from the organizers and the email goes dear hita no dear, dear dr unikrishnan we really enjoyed your talk about going back to finding your roots in india and searching out your grandmother's house uh please uh, accept our invite or we'd really be interested in having you over this year because last year we couldn't have you and so on and i'm like are you sure you you're talking to the right person and you wouldn't believe the blatantness of this i got an email response which said oh i'm so sorry we confused with someone you with someone else who also talked about india and i'm like yeah that's what names are for but yeah, okay yeah. <laughs> i yeah. get it <laughs> yeah and, and you know i think it's really i think it's really interesting i mean the context of course in the uk is different from the us and i think that one of the challenges to be an indian immigrant in the us is that your experiences are not the same as black and latinx groups mm. for instance right and so not to kind of try to collapse all the experiences of racism right and to note that there's a very distinct you know history related to the black and latinx experience as opposed to the indian immigrant and, and there's also this myth of the model minority that's been perpetuated so as to precisely to position the you know the indian immigrant as closer to whiteness right as closer to having a high class positionality versus the black and brown who should be able to lift themselves up, up by the bootstraps and there's a really problematic place that indians have actually in the united states but then in the uk it could be different because of course indians are, are often the laboring classes in the uk but they're also all classes so there's a a different kind of history there and so i think that's something that i've also been much more sensitive to and like you know when i experience certain microaggressions like the ones i talked about and others these are still quite different you know than the slights experienced by a black colleague of mine who might get pulled over for some sort of very minor infraction while driving his car right it's completely ridiculous right that that happens continues to happen but it happens all the time not to mention that the extreme forms like for instance just what happened in minneapolis yeah two days ago where someone was was killed right at that routine police uh, check so i mean i the death dealing nature of racism for black and latinx groups is quite different than what we experience and i just want to be you know quite cognizant of that even if all these microaggressions are extraordinarily insulting right absolutely wow yeah i'm i'm still washed i'm like uh, still at the point where i'm taking all of that in because i have a feeling like i learned a lot today from this conversation like Thank you Melini. That was I I can't even put it into such eloquent <laughs> words as you did before. But I learned something about like in terms of like infrastructure of care, right? That you need that around you that we are not gods although we're scientists. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's I think a very I thought that was a very intense sentence. I also kind of like synthesize out of this what you said that a lot of these things are on us so in the sense that we need to make change also happen 
if we're in the position to do so. And that we're also, well, on the one hand, advocates not only for ourselves, but also for others around us. And at the way how we design our research and how we ask our questions is vital for, for the outcomes in the end, if we're perpetuating certain systems or if we're, we're I don't know, vessels of change, I want to say, right? Like if we're going along from there. So yeah, I want to ask you, do you have any, any other final thoughts on that? Or do you want to add more advice for early yeah. careers? I have already had a lot here. That's well, I, I think the way you put it just now is just so beautiful, right? If you, if you are in a position to do so, right, then you must be a vessel for meaningful and positive change, uh, just to paraphrase what you said. And I think I think this is so, so true because even though, you know, we are academics and some of us are earlier career and you feel like it just seems that the system is so overwhelming. I mean, you still, as someone who is now being trained and is trained to articulate and think and write and read, you know, you do have some ability to effectuate change, however small, right? And to to always be able to recognize that you do have that opening and that relative uh, power and no matter, you know, how small it seems. And I think this is something I've always taken very seriously because I remember before I got tenure and I recognize that the, the US system of tenure is, is different from places around the world, but there's this, there's this sort of um, advice, I, I guess, again, there's sort of advice, right? Oh, keep your head down. Don't be political. Don't write op-eds on, uh, you know, against racism and colonialism, you know, don't publish in these venues without high impact factors, right? And I feel like, look, if you're not going to speak up before tenure, then when are you going to speak up? Are you really going to suddenly change and suddenly become a politically emboldened actor? So stop being spineless because because ultimately there are other people that that will benefit from you speaking up, even if it's at a faculty meeting when you're like, you know, I, I really think that this is an underrepresented viewpoint and we need to this insight, right? Or something like that to something a little bit more bolder. But I, I'm just saying that that whole thing of like, keep your head down, just do what academics do is like, it doesn't vibe anymore in the world, you know? I mean, who are we kidding, right? Like we don't have that luxury of just sort of being so self-interested and self self-promotional at all other costs at this point. And I think that actually ultimately it won't serve you well, right? And so, I mean, I just feel like mm. this whole like, like, you know, be quiet, keep your head down, like don't do the other things that are more outspoken or social justice oriented. It's just, again, it's this anachronous advice. It doesn't actually fit with the, today's times. And I think that there are ways, and as you said, you know, for the position that you're in, that you can effectuate meaningful change and you should try to do it. Awesome. Wise words to live by. Yeah. Thanks again, Melanie. Well, thank you all so much. I thoroughly enjoyed this and I look forward to hearing the final podcast and also seeing some of the other ones, hearing some of the other ones that you've done. Thank you so much. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to you. The Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast series is brought to you by a working group belonging to the Early Career Network of the International Association for the Study of the Commons. We are the IAC ECN. For more information on our activities and to join our vibrant network, do check us out at iac-commons.org. Thank you all and see you the next time. <laughs>